Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please, if you've lost your place in the book of Psalms, find your way there. We're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43 in some detail together today. <clears throat> A study was done by Bob Baptist, I'll get it the third time, I'll get it right, Boston University, and the study was designed to determine the level of depression in the American public, having to do with adults specifically. The first one was taken in 2019, and the number of people by percentage was 8.5% of Americans were suffering from more than just mild depression at some time during that year. The next year, which saw the onset of the pandemic, that survey, which was taken in the months of March and April, indicated that 27% of American adults suffer from that kind of heavy depression. Fast forward one more year into early this year, same time frame in March and April, that had risen to 32.7% of the population, adults. That's incredible, isn't it? To think that one out of three people in the United States who are adults suffer at one time or another during this year from depression. The pandemic has had a greater effect on our psychology than it has on our physiology. It has attacked us in our hearts, in our minds. We need to understand that just because we know Jesus doesn't mean we are exempt from being depressed. The good news is when we do know Christ, you're going to see this today, we have a leg up on people who don't. And that's nothing to be happy about. Because we who have had bouts of depression, we know how debilitating that is. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. How it limits you. It robs you. And it robs people around you of what they could have if you are not suffering from depression. Many people say if you're depressed, it's a sign of your being in sin. Well, that could be true. We're going to look at that today together. But it's not always true. Think of some of the greatest figures in Scripture. I'm going to take a triumphant look at three people who are well known to you. One more than others. I'm going to save him for last. But I'm going to begin with Moses and also Elijah. Do you remember when Jesus took his three closest apostles and they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration? Who showed up? Moses and Elijah. In the book of Numbers, the 11th chapter of the Bible talks about Moses being so outdone and burdened by the pressures that came with leading one and a half million people to the promised land, and they were really rebellious, he said to the father, he said, Father, just kill me. 
Any of you felt like that? Some of you have felt like that related to your children. But you didn't, you didn't kill them, right? Thank God you didn't do that. You felt like it sometimes. But this was a real thing for Moses, the man whom I believe, and I'm not the one who makes that decision. It's really immaterial. Was probably the second greatest man who ever lived next to Jesus because of the responsibility that God gave him in leading those people for 40 years in the wilderness and then giving us the law of God upon which the rest of the Bible is really established in which bears witness to the person of Jesus Christ. Elijah, the great prophet, he had won a resounding victory against all odds against the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel. And after winning this resounding victory, single-handedly winning it, we know what the Bible says. He ended up running away and hiding. And he was hiding because he was afraid of a threat which Queen Jezebel of Israel had made against his life. And he was ready to die, just like Moses was. These are great men of God, men who are filled with the Spirit of God. And then Paul the Apostle, Paul arguably the greatest Christian who's ever lived. Paul makes this astonishing statement in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says about him and his followers, his disciples, he said, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. That sounds like a man who's depressed, doesn't it? He confirms that later in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when he comes out and says, we were depressed until a man named Titus came and Titus was one of his spiritual children. And when he came, he brought encouragement to them, those who were part of Paul's entourage on the mission. Well, Here's someone else that might come as a surprise to you. Jesus Christ suffered this. I'm not grasping for straws to say that because in Matthew's account of Jesus commenting to the three closest associates in the garden, he comes out from praying and we know from Luke that he was under such great stress that the capillaries in his face burst. It's hematidrosis is the physiologi physiological description of this. It's when one is under great stress, sometimes blood will come through the pores instead of sweat. And this is what he said to them. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Now, none of us comes even close in our struggle with difficulty, with depression, to what Jesus went through. He was on a mission. The mission was to save the world of their sins. He knew what lay ahead. And he was in this titanic struggle with himself as to what he was to do. But he went through. Aren't you glad he followed through? Praise the Lord for that. Depression is something that we know about. Some people say it's the cold, common cold of the mind, and that would be something that would capture it a little bit. Have you ever been in the dumps before, sort of down? Have any of you been there? 
It's possible, if not probable, there would be more than one person present today who you're singing the blues a lot more than you want to. And we need to understand that God wants us to admit that to ourselves, but then to find a solution for what ails us in this area. And we see it prescribed for us in Psalm 42. I want to talk a moment about the human author. He is a son of Korah. And that means nothing to most of you. Korah was a descendant of Levi, the head of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And all the Levites, all the descendants of Levi, they were priests. And among them was a man by the name of Kohath. And he had a son named Korah. And Korah led a rebellion against the Lord by rebelling against Moses, one of those difficult groups of people that Moses had to deal with, which led him to want to die. Well, what we know about Korah, the rebellion resulted in 250 of his followers as they protested against the limitation that was placed in their minds upon their opportunity to lead spiritually. And they were griping because God had set one man as the high priest, Aaron. The result of their rebellion is those 250 were swallowed up when the earth caved in where they were standing. God does not deal well with rebellion like Korah. So it's rather remarkable, if not surprising here, that the human author of this psalm, and really I'm doing 42 and 43 together because when you look at the evidence for this psalm, and I'm calling it one psalm, you'll see how it would be connected. There are 11 times in the psalms where a, a particular psalm is accredited to the sons of Korah, and perhaps a son of Korah who composed this psalm, and every time it shows up, the name is at the top of one of these psalms. And the older manuscripts combine these two together. And there's some repetitiveness in these two psalms. Why it was divided into two, maybe the one who put the Psalter together wanted people to be exposed to this more than once during the regular cycle of reading because it's so important to help them to overcome difficulty in the area of their emotional health as they work their way through the Psalter, the Psalms as we call them. But this man is an interesting man because remember his great, 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 we don't remember how many grandfathers removed, but his grandfather was one who led this rebellion. He was a man who was in rebellion against God. It cost him dearly. But it's interesting, isn't it, how from his line came a man who wrote the Word of God to us. And what that would indicate to us is just because you may have an ancestor who was wicked doesn't mean that you're bound to be wicked yourself. Just because you had an ancestor who left this world without Christ 
and in opposition to God doesn't mean God is going to hold his sin or her sin against you. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, for instance, and there are several places in the book of Ezekiel where the Bible talks about the soul that sins will surely die. A man will not be punished for his son's sin, nor will a son be punished for his father's sin. The good news is each person stands before God on his or her own two feet and answers to the Lord. And if we know Jesus Christ, we've turned from our sin, we've given him control of our life, the Bible says there's therefore no condemnation for us because we're in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good to know? That God does not hold the sins of other people in our family line against us or those who follow us, our sins are not held against them. Every man, every woman is responsible to answer to God for his or her sin. Well, with that as a background, I'd like to look at three things from this passage of Scripture. I'll try to be as simple and succinct as I can be. The first of these is, what are the symptoms of depression? We see some symptoms here. This is not an exhaustive list, but it gives us some symptoms to give us insight into the fact this man was depressed. Also, we're going to look at the source of depression. That's important also. And we're going to finish by the solution. All those things are in this passage. So let's go right ahead and look at the symptoms. One of the symptoms that indicates to us that this psalmist was in depression is given to us in verse 3, the first part. My tears have been my food day and night. Well, that tells us something, doesn't it, about this man? He was crying. And if you go down to verse 9, the second part of verse 9, it's in the form of a question, the second question in verse 9. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Mourning, groaning, crying out to God, weeping. Weeping, not always, but often, is an indication of Depression, isn't it? And we see in this man that he had these signs of depression. He was weepy and he was mourning. He was mourning publicly, it seems, as he went about. I believe there's evidence that he was given to mood swings as well. And this is common with people who have severe depression. Look at verse 5. Why are you in despair? O oh, my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. So in verse 5, he has a faith statement, doesn't he? He calls himself to the carpet. Why are you in despair, O oh, my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? And then he speaks about hope in God, which is indicative of faith in God and trust in God. And then right after that, he says, this whole matter about my soul is in despair within me. Twice in the course of one and a half verses, he talks about despair. So it's despair, hope, despair, hope. We see this going on, mood swings. These are characteristics of people 
who are suffering more than mild depression. So let's consider the source of the depression. This is important for us to understand. There are two primary sources I see in this passage. You may see others, and I'm not pretending to be the best interpreter of this passage, but the first thing I sense is there was separation in this man's life, and it was separation from the place of worshiping God. Now, he worshiped the Lord individually. Do you worship the Lord on other occasions than just on a Sunday morning like this or some other time? Do you worship the Lord periodically, maybe regularly? I hope you do. But there's something which happens when we come together with people to worship the Lord. This man gives us a hint of this in verse 6. The second part of verse 6, he says, Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Now we know where Mount Hermon is. Some of you have seen pictures of the Holy Land. To the north of the Sea of Galilee, the headwaters of the Jordan River are found. And they are found probably somewhere on Mount Hermon. This majestic mountain juts off the floor of the desert area there in what is modern-day Lebanon, and it's snow-capped a lot of the year. And that drainage comes down. There are beautiful waterfalls and rivers and streams which stream down. And this man finds himself near the peak of Hermon and then Mount Mizar. Mount Mizar, archaeologists have not been able to discover its location. Suffice it to say, it was in the area of Mount Hermon. And perhaps this man, and this could give us insight into why he was so despairing, was an exile from Jerusalem. And if we were to stand at Mount Hermon and some of the other mountains in the area, you would be able to see on a clear day, and some days they're very clear days like we have here, and you could see all the way down the Rift Valley and all, down, all the way down the Jordan Valley, and to your right as you look to the west, you would see Mount Zion where the city of Jerusalem is. And when he saw that, it grieved him because he was separated from the place of worship. Now let me back up a moment and let you know what the duties were of the sons of Korah. Their job was to take care of the tabernacle, or in this case, the temple, because this psalm was written after the temple had been built. And back in the day when they were first assigned responsibilities that they had to continue to take care of, when there was no temple, the tabernacle moved around a lot, and their responsibility along with two other grandchildren of Kohath was they were to get, get all the utensils and all the articles, like especially the Ark of the Covenant, and lampstands, and then also altar. And whenever the tabernacle would move, they were the ones who were given the assignment to do that. So they had a ministry of keeping house, if you will. They had another ministry. We know this from the book of 1 Chronicles. 
that they love to sing too. Some of you love to sing. Some of you can sing well. And the rest of you are like me. You don't sing too well. But it doesn't matter, does it? The Bible says make a joyful noise to the Lord, correct? But they sang with great gusto, the Scripture says. They don't use gusto, but that's the way I interpret it. They just sang loudly. They loved to worship the Lord. And they participated in encouraging others to do the same as a result. The Bible says in the book of Psalm 84, verse 10, it says that it's better to be in the court of the Lord one day than a thousand days somewhere else. And then the psalmist goes on to say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. That's the job the sons of Korah had, a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So they love being in the temple, in the tabernacle before there was a temple. They loved to be there because it was the center of the worship of God by the people of God. As he was looking back down the valley, the Jordan River Valley, when he was looking back down and he got a glimpse in the far distance of what he knew was Mount Zion, where Jerusalem was, where the temple was, when he saw that, it grew heavy on his heart. He wanted to be with the people of God to worship. You wanted to be with the people of God to worship today. Thank you, Lord, for people like these people who desire to know God and to be with God's people. There's something that happens when God's people are together that is highly therapeutic. Now, we don't come here to get well primarily, but when we come here and we really worship the Lord, we sang that song about magnifying the Lord. I love that song that we sang today. I've heard it at least twice this weekend. It just lifts my heart. It reminds me of a verse in Psalm 69, 30. The Bible says, we magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. We sing a song in the, to the name of God, a song of praise to praise Him. When we come together, we praise the Lord. We looked at this last week we were considering our responsibility in the body of Christ. But when we think about it in this context in particular, when we come together to worship the Lord, it's an opportunity not just to worship Him, and it is undoubtedly. And the Bible says, wherever two or three have gathered together in my name, Jesus says this, there I am in their midst. There's something which happens when we are together and we're worshiping the Lord together through music, through observance of the Lord's Supper, through prayer, through giving to the work of the Lord, through studying Bible passages like this together for direction in our lives and understanding of who God is, something happens because it's the, pro the presence of the Lord is in more power. When we are devoted to the Lord, it just makes sense and together. One of the things a pandemic has done I apologize, I meant to do one thing that I forgot to do in preparation for the sermon today. I was going to do some research on how numbers of people who come to a place of worship like this have dropped as a result of the pandemic. Some of you probably have seen those numbers. I'm not familiar with them. They have dropped, I'm sure. And what happens in 
people's concern about their own health, and you should be concerned about your health. We're concerned about your health as well. But they can, can get afraid of reassociating with God's people. And the Bible tells us that we're not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, that's not said in any way to guilt anybody who's here listening or who may be watching on the live stream. It's not intended for that at all. But this man, I believe, probably had a heart for other people as much as he did for himself, this son of Korah. And he knew the importance of what the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, two places, by the way. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Do you believe the day of the Lord is coming sooner than later? Well, yeah, it's going to. We don't know when. Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour, not even he when he was here in the flesh did he know. But it's coming, and you sense it. You see the signs of the time. Beginning today, I'm talking about hope because the Bible talks about, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, it says before Christ came, people were without hope because they were without God in the world. And we must know the Lord to have hope. Christ is the hope of Israel. We sang about that also today in His coming. But we come together to worship the Lord together. There's great therapy in our coming together. There's curative power when God's people are together to worship. The second idea in this matter uh, regarding this man is that he didn't get to minister to people himself. Here again, there's healthiness associated when we minister to other people. You say, that, well, Mike, you get to do that almost every week. How am I ministering to people? Well, when you come here, you see people, you can pray for people without their ever knowing it. Have you ever thought about that? I do that a lot. If you get bored with the sermon, just start praying for people around you. You'll be using your time very wisely if you're to do that. And we just pray that the Lord would use us. And when he couldn't go to the place of worship and mix and mingle with believers, he was out of the loop in that regard. And it burdened his soul. It bothered him. So separation from God in worship and separating separation from the body of Christ in building each other up, as the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, with the gifts God has given to us so that we as a body can better glorify the Lord. Those things are difficult and sources of depression. Isolation is not God's best for us. Here's the other thing besides the matter of separation. It's also persecution. So where do we find that in this passage of Scripture? Look at verse 3. In the middle of that verse, it says, While they say, and they is a reference to enemies, while they say to me all day long, where's your God? They're taunting him, aren't they? They're mocking him. And let me pause and make an obvious observation here. 
the observation is there were no atheists in this region of the world at this time in the history of the world. Every area had their own God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only true God. He was the God of this man and all those descended from Abraham. And this situation was such that these people were mocking. And he began, this is Satan's work, began to work on us when we're having trouble with depression. Where is your God? Why doesn't he do something to rectify the problem and make you well with the problem? Have you ever been mocked that way? Maybe not by any human being, but in your mind. Has that ever come to your mind? Well, you know where it comes from. It comes from the God of this age or the God of this world, Satan himself, because he likes nothing more than to discourage the people of God, to put them into a place of great despair and disturbance in their lives. So we see this here in the passage of Scripture. Persecution at the hands of other people. Look at verse 10 of chapter 42. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me when they say to me all day long, where is your God? The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie of the devil, isn't it? I've been hit with sticks and stones before, and I've been bruised in my soul by things people have said to me. And those things said to me are more potent and more disturbing than physical things that have happened to me. They're harder to get over. And sometimes those become wounds in our soul and we let them fester. We don't deal as the Lord would have us to do with them. And we know what he says. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wait a minute, Lord. That's ridiculous. Let me just get one good hit in on that person, whether it's a verbal hit or a physical or both. Just let me get one good lick on that person. Well, that's not the way of the Lord, is it? And when you think about praying for people who've hurt you, a shield against becoming bitter toward them is clear in the matter of praying for them. Here's why. Have you ever wondered why Jesus says, not only love your enemies, but pray for them? Because when we come in the presence of a holy God, and a loving God, a God who in His Son said to those who were crucifying Him, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We need to be like Christ in that. We can't do it on our own. We have to depend upon Him, obviously. But He will give us the power to forgive. And the result of that is we will not give in to bitterness. Bitterness ruins a person more quickly than anything else will. And it'll take root, and it root, its root will grow. Sometimes we like to top the weed of bitterness off without going to the root cause of it and giving it up and seeing that God can handle that. 
leave vengeance to the Lord, the Bible says in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Paul quotes from the Old Testament. And let the Lord handle that. He knows how to deal with those people in a way that will have lasting effects and prevent us from letting that wound of bitterness become a contributing factor to our depression. So here's a man. He's away, away from home. He's being taunted. His faith is being attacked. He's being called into question. And here he is. He's being persecuted. Some of you here find yourselves in a similar position. You've been persecuted. And you can trace your depression back to some kind of persecution. Well, the Lord wants to heal you of that. And it begins with being honest with God and realizing that He has a plan to handle those people and He will bring them to judgment for what they have done. And He will do it in a way that won't simply exonerate you and help you, but will cause these people hopefully not to be troublesome to you or other people down the road. So, here's the thing that's less obvious in the passage of Scripture. When we undergo tribulation, the Bible says in Romans 5, many of you know this verse in Romans 5, it says, we exult in our tribulation. And by the way, the word tribulation there is the word that was used to describe the pressing of olives in an olive press to get the oil out or the pressing of grapes in a grape press to get the juice out for the wine. It's extreme pressure. We exult in the extreme trouble we undergo. It goes on to say, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, stick-to-itiveness. We hang in there. We endure. And endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces, here's that word, hope. And hope does not disappoint. The goal is for us to get to a place where we can really have hope and people who are suffering from depression don't. And the solution is to exult in some of these things that make no sense at all to exult in. But that's the Word of God and it's tried and true and it's an answer to the problems that you might have in the area of depression. And then this man in question, he, he is drawn to the Lord because his thirst for God grows. This is a very interesting phenomenon that could be echoed over and over again when you're having trouble, tribulation comes your way. And at first you're saying, well, where are you, God? And God can handle that from you and me. He's God. He doesn't deserve that kind of discredit, but he can handle it. But then you finally realize that you want to be nearer to him. Look at verse 1. The trouble is designed to draw you nearer to the Lord. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This man found himself longing 
for the Lord, like a man with dying thirst is longing for a drink of water or a deer who's been chased by some predator and comes to a water brook and drinks from that water brook and is reinvigorated as a result. So we see in this passage of Scripture that there's this growing desire to know God that comes when we understand that we are being tested and tried and there's no way for us to mature apart from difficulty and the proper response to it. Look at verse 1 of 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Do you see a change in this man's approach? He's questioning, but the more he considers the Lord, contemplates the Lord, now he's saying, you're my strength. And then he sways back on the other end of the pendulum. Why, has, has, why have you rejected me? Why did I go on mourning? And then he comes back to verse 3. I love this. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. And then look at the last part of verse 5 and 43. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He had been in a position where he was unable to praise God because he was so distressed. But when he began to contemplate who God is and realize his only solution is to put his hope in God, the result is there's a lifting of that burden in his heart as he makes that transition to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and to know that God's the one who can indeed, the only one who can bring healing to him. So let's look at the solution in the last four minutes we have together. It's to talk to yourself. And many of you talk to yourself anyway. I do that too. I'm always embarrassed when someone comes in the room and I'm talking to myself. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know probably most of you do that. And, but he doesn't say just chatter to yourself because what does he do here? Three times he says the same thing, so let's just look at it one more time in verse 5 of Psalm 42. Who, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? You don't have a leg to stand on, soul. Hope in God, and that means put your trust in God. Wait on God is the idea, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So we need to sit our souls down and give them a good talking to. Just like you would sit your child down and give a good talking to her or to him when you want to get your point across. And you say, listen, soul, the Bible says in the book of Psalm 103, you want to write this down, by the way, verses 1 through 5, Psalm 103, 1 through 5, says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. David's giving his soul the talking. Bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits. And then he gives five areas of benefit. Look carefully. Listen, he forgives all your iniquities. Can you believe that? All your sins that you've committed, he will forgive. All of them, not just some of them. 
He'll take them away. No more concern about being punished because you've given your soul to the Lord. Secondly, he says, who heals all your diseases. We know we all leave this world and most of us will leave due to a disease. But think about how many times you've been sick along the way and you've gotten well. Anybody here besides me have, has had COVID? It was not a pretty picture. I'm not going to paint it for you. You can just imagine. The Lord healed me of that. That's not the first time I've had some ancestor microbe ancestor of the COVID. I counted up four of the times when I had a bona fide flu in my many years. Sick, 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 well today by the grace of God. Thank you, Lord. And he's healed me of many other things in my life. I'm looking forward to getting to heaven and or getting cataract surgery. I'm not sure which <laughs> comes first. But where I can see without, I don't have to put glasses on anymore. Since I was eight years old, I've worn glasses. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling the truth. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be awesome. Okay, third thing, redeems your life from the pit. There are many kinds of pits along the way. Depression is one of them. I believe it was Irma Bombach. Some of you are old enough to remember her. She was quite a glib person, comedian. She wrote a book, If Life is a Bowl of Cherries, Why Am I, why am I Always in the Pits, she said. Well, that's the way we spill sometimes. But what we know is the Lord redeems us from the pit of depression when we apply what he tells us here to speak the truth. And remember again, look at verse 3 of chapter 43. Oh, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. I make no apology in saying what I'm about to say. God's word is that which will be used by the Spirit of God to help you get free of your depression. I'm not talking about some extreme kinds of depression that are chemical in nature, but what I do know is God will help you with your depression through the Word of God. Speak to your soul. Psalm 103, 1 through 5. The fourth thing is crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Are you surly, hard to get along with? He's given you His compassion, His kindness. He dwells in you by Christ's Spirit. And then the last thing is, He renews your life like the eagle and gives you invigorated living. That's my translation of it. These are the things that are ours. In order for that to happen, we've got to set our mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God not on things of the earth. We need to saturate, saturate our minds and hearts with the Word of God and take it seriously because it's in the Word of God that we find direction. It's in the Word of God that we find correction. It's in the Word of God that we find victory over any number of problems in our lives. And the Lord will sustain us in a mighty way if we trust in him in this way. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today and we just ask in Jesus' name that you would cause us to pause and to submit our lives in this area to you. 
and really Jesus all of our life, to you, not just some of it. We ask you, who knows the extremity of pain in your soul, thank you for dying for that pain, Lord, and thank you for conferring your spirit upon us so that we can overcome even the biggest obstacle we have psychologically. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.